Hi, guys. Good to see you. Thank you. You like my shoes? My preaching shoes. Where's Peter? Peter Gensey. Thank you, Peter. I, Brooklyn went really well because of the shoes. So thank you. Uh, I'm excited to be with you because we are launching, like Ashley said, we're launching a brand new speaking series on Sundays that coincide with our community groups starting. So what that means is that every week we're going to be talking about a different concept uh, that the community groups will be going through. They will, they will be doing the deep dive uh, during the week. So it's good. I, I feel like it's a really exciting discipleship opportunity as a church to go a little bit deeper in, in what is actually um, talked about on Sunday. So depending on how well I do today, sign up for a community group, okay? <laughs> we'll let that be the determining factor. When I was in the fifth grade, I got glasses. And when I say I got glasses, I wanted them so badly because my sister got them that I staged a daytime Emmy award-winning performance <laughs> to get them. Now, I knew that like a normal 11-year-old would not ask for glasses. I mean, who does that besides this guy? So I, I, I observed what needed to happen for me for my parents to take me to the doctor's office. So I, I squinted a lot, <laughs> tilt my head back and forth, and it worked. I have evidence. Let's take a look. <laughs> Boom! 11-year-old Cody, glasses, butt cut, looks great. But can we just, can we just give props? to an 11-year-old that would wear a banded collar shirt, all right? That's a banded collar, guy. Those are back in style now. I was 11 years old. Mad respect for little Cody. <laughs> and now, for those of you with perfect vision, yada, 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 uh, and you've never had to endure the anxiety of going to an optometrist's office and having air blown into your eyeball where you jump out of your seat and start crying in the presence of complete strangers all at the same time, I'm gonna break it down for you. Because it's actually a really cool process. Uh, the, you go in, the doctor sits you down, the phoropter comes over, not a dinosaur, a machine. The phoropter comes over, goes in front, of your in front of your face, and depending on the feedback you give, the doctor determines what lens comes over your eye. And then they use the, the knobs, of course, all the, the knobs and the lens. And the whole objective of this torture is so that you can see as clear as possible the chart that's in the back of the room. That's the whole objective, is for you to see as clearly as possible. How you see determines what you see. How you see determines what you see how I see myself, how I see those closest to me, how I see the world based on my personal experiences also determines what I see, the lens through which I see the world. It's also, it's like you're buying something new, right? You've never seen this before, uh, and then all of a sudden this, this shirt or this shoes or, or this couch comes into your purview, and you say, oh my goodness. That is a good-looking shirt, 
or those are good-looking shoes, or that is a good-looking couch. And so you save up for this shirt or those shoes or that couch, because let's be honest, on these streets out here, you've got to save up for everything. Okay? So you save up for the shirt or the shoes or the couch, and you go and purchase said item. And then something happens. Something that, something that is wildly crazy, but you go in and you purchase a shirt, so now you have it, and you think this one item that was made specifically for you, something made for you to, to feel unique and special, all of a sudden, it starts showing up everywhere you look. People walking down the street, have your shirt, or have your shoes, or carrying your crouch across the street, everywhere you look. How you see will determine what you see. And ultimately, what you see will determine what you do. What you see will determine how you live your life. And if we're really going to call ourselves Christians, a people who are being formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the lens which we see is the gospel. How we see the gospel and how we see through the gospel, using it as a mirror for ourselves, determines what we do. Are we really acting like gospel-believing Christians? Or do we need to make a vision appointment? And so that's what we're going to be really wrestling with uh, together over the coming weeks in this series. What is the gospel? Really, what is it? Where do I fit into this gospel? Uh, Because we talk about it all the time. You know, we hear that, oh, the gospel, yes, yes, the gospel, the gospel, yes. We hear about it in Christian circles. Oprah has her own version of it. And I love Oprah. I think she's amazing. But Oprah did not die for me. Okay? She did not. So I'm going to follow the gospel for the one who did, and his name is Jesus. Colossians 1.6, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Just as it changed your life from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. So if the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and growing, then everything has to do with the gospel. God, humanity, salvation, worship, relationships, work, recreation, personality, everything has to do with the gospel. So what is it? The best way that I think we can talk about the gospel, I think the best way that it can be described is that it is a story. It is a story of good news, a story of the creator and his created. Now, I went the wrong way with my pages. Hold on. Thank you. Don't read Hebrew. And this is where the story begins. God himself creating. And deep down, we all have a sense that this is true, right? We all have a sense that we are important, that there's something dignified, that there's something majestic, that there's something even eternal about being human. But for all the majesty, for all the dignity, we are not ultimate. And deep down, we know this. 
because we, we are looking for that. Deep down, we know that we are created beings, that there is something or someone that is greater than we are. And the Bible tells us that this someone is God, God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because God is one in three, he did not create out of need. He did not create out of a need for relationship because he was already in perfect relationship. He did not create out of a need to be worshiped. He created out of an overflow of who he is. He created out of an overflow of love. He created out of an overflow of his goodness. That is why he created. And he created human beings in his image, which gives every human, regardless of what you look like, regardless of where you came from, equal dignity. And we will often say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? We've, you've heard that um, expression before. And what that means is that none of us is any better than anybody else, right? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all have indwelling sin. There is not one of us who is better than any other. But I want to take it a little bit further. And I want to say the ground is level at creation because God created us all equally, and I, I really think we have to let a clear theolog theological vision form around Genesis 1.27, which is God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Man, male and female, he created them. Every human being who has ever lived deserves equal dignity, equal value, because their humanity, their createdness demands it. And I think this is true even to, especially as so we think about today, uh, especially if you have skin that's my color. You have to think about what the gospel really meant and means and what the implications are for that. And if everyone has equal dignity, then what are the implications and what is my response to what is happening consi consistently on a daily basis to my brothers and sisters of color? What is happening on a daily basis to my refugee brothers and sisters? What is happening on a daily basis to my immigrant brothers and sisters? What is the gospel, the implication of the gospel for me around that? We already, we already see that. Genesis 1.27, he created everyone in his own image. And so in our original creation, everything was good. Perfect peace, stability, harmony, a wholeness defined existence. But rather than live under God's uh, perfect authority, humanity turned away from God, rebelled against him in sin. Now, if you have any sort of religious background, you under, understand the concept of sin, violating God's moral law. That's what sin is. Now, as human beings, we are all sinners by nature and by choice. But if you don't have context for sin, if you didn't grow up with any sort of religious background, sin can be explained this way. Sin is building your identity, building who you are, your self-worth and your happiness on anything other than God. That's what sin is. Building your identity, your self-worth, your self-value, your happiness on anything other than God. And... Most of us who are well aware of what sin is have a propensity to excuse our sin by claiming, you know what, I'm not that bad. What about this guy over here? 
But that really only shows how little we understand about it, how foggy our lens is. Because sin is not primarily an action. Sin is a disposition. Sin is our sole aversion to the perfect authority of God. And it carries a death sentence. Sin manifests itself, displays itself, and shows itself through pride, selfishness, independence, and a lack of love for God and for others. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Now that we are all completely depressed, (laughs) thankfully, every good story has a hero. And the gospel story hero is Jesus Christ. Humanity needed a savior. Humanity needed a redeemer, a deliverer to free us from the slavery and the overwhelming guilt of sin and to restore the world to its original good. And Jesus is that hero. That's why God sent Jesus to the world to be our rescuer. Jesus, who was truly human, to pay the debt we owe to God for our rebellion against his holiness and his justice. But he was not merely human because he also conquered the the power of sin once and for all. Jesus, as a human, lived a life of perfect obedience to God, making him the only person in history who did not deserve judgment. And yet he became judgment. He became our substitute so that we could be in right relationship with God. Now, not only did he die in our place, but he also came back to life three days later. And, and his resurrection, which honestly, I don't think we think enough about. I mean, I know we celebrate Easter every year, but if you think about it, Jesus died. And then he came back to life. And he is still alive. 2,000 some odd years later, he's alive right now. Have you ever just thought about that? He was dead. And now he's not. And that same power that brought him back to life is in all of us that call ourselves Christians. It's in us. Guys, are you thinking about this? Are we really letting this mess with our minds and our hearts as it should? He was dead, and now he's not. It's amazing. It's amazing. And not only that, because I think a lot of times, too, we can talk about, when we talk about salvation, we talk about individual salvation. You know, someone coming to the saving knowledge of Christ and giving their, putting their hope and faith in Christ. And so talking about individual salvation, I, am, I, I once was dead and now I'm alive in Christ. But that's not, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. Because it tells us in Revelation 21, 5, behold, this is Jesus talking, I am making all things new. So when we talk about Jesus and his redemption, we're not just talking about the individual souls, although that's a part of it. What we're talking about is a much bigger picture of just getting into heaven or just having our, our sins forgiven. What we're talking about is the redemption of all that is created back to its original goodness. That's why Jesus came and he's coming back. And the promise is that he's going to restore everything that was created, including us, back to its original good. And so now we get to our part of the story, creation. 
the fall, redemption, and the last part, the exciting part, the part we get to play is restoration. Because the privilege we have when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, part of that privilege, part of that trust is that we get to join him in his mission of restoring everything back to its original good. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came close to them and said, all the authority of the universe has been given to me. Now you go. All of you go. Not just the person that's standing up here on a Sunday. All of you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to faithfully follow all that I have commanded you. And never forget that I am with you every day, every single day, even to the completion of this age. By the grace of God, we get to delight in God. We get to live our lives for his glory, serve our fellow man and woman, and make his gospel known to all others through our words and our actions. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Creation, the fall, redemption, restoration. So, what are the implications of this? What does this mean for me, not just on a Sunday for two hours where everyone's on their best behavior, everyone's living their best lives, these two hours. What are the gospel implications for my life on Monday morning, on Wednesday afternoon, if we're being really real, Friday and Saturday night? What are the gospel implications for my life? How you see will determine what you see, and what you see will determine what you do. Now, the model we're, we're about to look at in just a minute, the gospel grid, is going to be a really helpful visual for us on how the gospel works. So we can go ahead and put that up. So here we have your life, my life, over time. Our time over, our time going this way. <laughs> uh, at the very beginning of our Christian walk, our Christian life, there's a conversion point. When we become aware of the gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness, and we put our faith and we put our hope in Jesus, knowing that he paid the price to close that gap, to bridge that gap between God's holiness and my, my sinfulness, right? So you see that at the very beginning, the point of the triangle. Now, the, the Christian journey, the Christian life is a, an increasingly growing awareness of God's holiness, who he really is, and increasing awareness of my sinfulness, who I am, as I really, really am. Now, at the very beginning, I have a very limited view of God's holiness and my sinfulness, but as I begin to read the scriptures, as I begin to, to be a part of, of community, as I begin to worship God, I become more and more aware. Now, it's not that God is becoming more holy or that I'm even becoming more sinful. The name of the game here is what? Awareness. I am becoming increasingly aware of God's holiness, who he really is, and my sinfulness, who I really am. Now, as, as we, we see this, something else grows. As our understanding grows, something else grows, our appreciation and love for Jesus. As we realize and, and, and come to 
grips with what he really did for us. The cross gets bigger and more central in my life and what it, that means for someone to have sacrificed. The only person in history that, did, that deserved not to, to face judgment, who did face judgment in my stead, what that really means as the cross gets bigger and bigger in life. Now, wouldn't it be nice if life was up and to the right and down and to the right? And, uh, but that's not how it works, right? It's not as clear-cut as this. The cross just doesn't automatically grow in our lives and become more central in our lives because we still have indwelling sin. As long as we are alive, we still have indwelling sin in our lives. And I have an ongoing tendency to minimize the gospel story in my life. Said another way, I have a tendency to shrink the cross in my life, if we could go next to that. So I, I make decisions based on how I see that shrink the cross in my life over time, whether that's I'm not becoming aware of God and his holiness, or I am not really aware or really want to reckon with <laughs> my flesh or my sinfulness. And I'm going to cover uh, six ways that we could potentially be minimizing the cross or shrinking the cross, minimizing our sin. And if I read any one of these that really resonates with you, maybe you should join a community group today and dig deeper into that this week. Okay? Okay. Six ways of minimizing sin. Number one, defending. I find it difficult to receive feedback and weaknesses uh, about weaknesses or sin. When confronted, my tendency is to explain things away, talk about my successes, or justify my decisions. As a result, people are hesitant to approach me, and I rarely have conversations about difficult things in my life. Faking. I strive to keep up appearances and maintain a respectful image. My behavior, to some degree, is driven by what I think others think of me. I also do not like to think reflectively about my life. As a result, not many people know the real me. Hiding. I tend to conceal as much as I can about my life, especially the bad stuff. This is different from faking in that faking is about impressing. Hiding is more to do with shame. I don't think people will accept or love the real me. Exaggerating. I tend to think and talk more highly of myself than I ought. I make things, good or bad, out to be bigger than they are, usually to get attention. As a result, things often get more attention than they deserve and have a way of making me stressed or anxious. Blaming. I am quick to blame others for sin or circumstances. I have a difficult time owning my contributions to sin or conflict. There's an element of pride that assumes it's not my fault and or an element of fear of rejection if it is my fault and downplaying. I tend to give little weight to sin or circumstances in my life as if they are normal or not that bad. As a result, things often don't get the attention they deserve. They have a way of mounting to the point of being overwhelming. Anything resonate? Well, to give you a little window into my twisted heart, I would say uh, the things I lean more towards are, so I'm kind of at both ends of the spectrum. I'm kind of, I, I tend to lean more towards exaggerating 
and downplaying. How's that for a recipe? <laughs> so as far, far as, as far as exaggerating, I usually exaggerate the good, right? Uh, and so I, you, you think about John uh, in the book of John. He talks, he writes in, in where is it? Um, I didn't write the verse down. But in the book of John, he, he writes, he says, John, talking about himself, the disciple loved by Jesus, as if he was the only one Jesus loved. And that's how I see myself. Cody, the beloved disciple of Jesus. So everything's fine, guys, because I am the beloved disciple. So that, may, that helps me downplay my sin. If I'm the beloved disciple, the disciple Jesus loves, then this really isn't that bad. And that's minimizing the cross in my life. Thank you for letting me share. Oh, the human heart. But likewise, I, I would encourage us all this week, let's really, really wrestle and come to a conclusion about how we minimize the sin in our life. Ask, ask Jesus to help us put a finger on how do you personally minimize sin in your life. And I'll go through them one more time just so we have them. Defending, faking, hiding, exaggerating, blaming, or downplaying? How do we shrink the cross in our lives? How you see, the lens through which you see the world, determines what you see. And what you see determines what you do. So I'd like everybody to close their eyes right now. I'm just going to end our time together with a few questions. As we close, how do you see God? Is he some far off, aloof chess master? Or is he a close, personal Abba father? How do you see God right here in this moment? How do you see yourself? When was the last time you reckoned with yourself? When was the last time you were able to see who you really are? When was the last time you were able to see how God sees you right now as you are? In what ways and in what areas of your life are you shrinking the cross? In what ways and what areas are you becoming more aware of God's holiness? In what way is he getting bigger to you? In what way are you allowing an infinite love to come into those darkest places in your heart? And in light of his holiness, and in light of our sinfulness, what needs to change? Today, what needs to change? 